thankful for our time together this morning. What a blessing to be with you, come before you to worship you. What a blessing to be with each other. Uh, the saints, who are the excellent ones, the majestic ones, as David wrote it, and uh, whom is all my delight. And I feel that way, Lord, with your people. It's a delight to be together. Help us now as we open your word. Help us to understand by the ministry of the Spirit of God to take it off the page or off the digital device, however we're looking at the Word of God, and implant it into our souls and our hearts and our minds that we might love you better and look more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So turn to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read our text that we started last week, and uh, I think we'll finish today. No giggling from the audience. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not, dis, uh, does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall, be, uh, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the theme of this great portion of the Word of God, the book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church, is recorded in the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. We've mentioned this many times. I hope that by the time we get done with it, every one of you will be at least able to quote these Verses that are the theme. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Or the just shall live by faith. So, We've seen in the book so far, Paul explaining why we need the righteousness of God. He said the gospel reveals it, and it has the power to, to save us. We need it because we were condemned. From the moment of our birth, we were condemned because we were sinners. doesn't matter how pagan we are, how idolatrous we are, or how self-righteous we are in, in religion, even Christian religion. We stand condemned. Everyone. And, and so we need the righteousness of God. How do we get it? Well, that's what the 
chapter, the last part of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 5 is uh, talking about justification, being declared righteous, being declared righteous, not made righteous, because oftentimes we don't change that fast, right? But being declared righteous in a judicial sense, it's like in a courtroom and God the judge says, I see you as righteous, not as guilty anymore, not as ungodly anymore, not as sinners and, and enemies. I see you as righteous in my son, and so I declare you innocent, even though we know we're guilty in here. Justification, God's declaration of righteousness to ungodly people. Hallelujah. And he explained it kind of in big theological terms in the last part of chapter 3. And then he showed it by way of example in the life of Abraham in chapter 4. And then we get to chapter 5. And as I mentioned last week, really what he's doing in the first part of chapter 5 is stating some of the benefits of justification. The blessings, the, the results that belong to us who have placed our faith in Christ and been declared righteous by God. And so we talked last week about being, how being justified in the past when we believed, it changed our standing, our position before God. It, was, it changed everything, really, but it changed our standing. Even though in our person and in our practice we may not be changed all that rapidly, the moment that we put our faith in Christ, our standing before God was changed. We were no longer dead in our sins, guilty before him, deserving his wrath. We are alive in Christ. We stand before him as those that are called his children. Welcome into his family, never to face judgment by him. So it changed everything for us, and, and I identified three benefits that Paul actually identifies in the first two verses. The first was that of we have peace with God. One word is peace. We have peace with God. Not the peace of God. That comes to us over time as we get to know God more and more, more and more. But the peace with God is our standing has changed. No longer enemies, no longer at war with God, but rather at peace. Not just the absence of hostility, but the blessing of harmony with him. The second blessing was that of access. Access into grace in which we stand, Paul says. Access. The way was opened up through the death of Christ. And that was pictured in the, in the veil of the temple being uh, torn in two. Uh, saying there's no longer a separation between sinners and God. If they come by faith, they're welcomed in, into God's presence. What a joy that is to know. And, uh, and, and that's part of what was being read out of chapter 7 in Hebrews by Pastor Tom. He is making intercession for us so that we can actually go into the temple. Hebrews 4.16, we come with confidence into the throne room to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So access was the second blessing, and then hope was the third blessing, hope of the glory of God. That is the great uh, hope, isn't it, that 
this life is short and it's going to end and we when we when we die we go into the presence of god absent from the body present with the lord and what do we see there we see the glory of god what do we participate in and even have the glory of god the glory of god what is the glory of god again i said it again last week it is him and his perfection it's not just his brilliance, that Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle and the temple. It is his perfection in his attributes. And isn't it good to know when we get there, we'll be perfected that way? <laughs> no more sin. No more making bad choices. No more getting angry and then bitter and then trying to seek revenge. Um, as well as, you know, the benefit of a, a perfect body that's built for the eternal rather than the temporal I mean, so many benefits in the glory of God. We'll have a body like the Lord had when he resurrected from the dead. Perfect, perfect. So that brings us to the next thing that Paul says or identifies about justification in the first 11 verses, and that is, uh, and by the way, if you don't have an insert, you forgot it, and you want one, there are some on the table. If you'd raise your hand, someone will get you one, right? Lou would get you one. Looks like everyone's got the good, doing good, bringing your one there, Lou, Brian there. So being justified in the past also changes our practice in the present. So justified in the past changes our standing. Being justified in the past absolutely does change our practice in the presence in the present. And that's verses three through five. You know, Paul would firmly agree that uh, being justified in the past means more than the fact that our position before God has been changed. And it's what he's emphasizing in verse 3 through 5, the fact that being justified in the past, when we believe, changes the way that we view and live life on a daily basis. It changes the way that we live. It's not just an event that guarantees a future uh, deliverance from God's judgment. It's an event that absolutely changes the way that we live day in and day out from that moment that we believe. So I'm going to give you three more benefits. I know you don't have any numbers in there, but uh, three more benefits. The fourth benefit then from uh, being justified, declared righteous in the sight of God is that we are able to rejoice in our sufferings. Did I say that right? Rejoice in our sufferings. What? Rejoice in our sufferings. Huh? Rejoice in our sufferings. Now, the, now the, terms that, the term that Paul uses here for suffering, the Greek word is thlipsis, and it has the underlying meaning of being under pressure or being squeezed, if you will, from outside pressure. It was a word that was used in a secular sense of the uh, taking of olives and putting them in a press and squeezing them to get the olive oil out of it or taking grapes and whether it was put in a press or it was put in a, a big open barrel and then having feet dirty ugly feet you know stomping on put pressing on them to get the juice out of it it's the outside pressure that squeezes and that's the term that he used uses here it it is most likely being used by Paul to refer to the pressure put on by 
uh, on believers by Satan and and the world, the culture in which we live. They are they you know believers are constantly feeling the 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 pressure, being squeezed. Uh, you know, by the the godless society, and what they tell us over and over and over again is, hey, you need to get on the right side of history. Get on. The, what? It's a dumb statement, to be honest with you. But that's what they keep telling you. You need to get on the right side of history, which means you need to get in line with what we're thinking, the way we're thinking, what we're telling you is right and and good and all of that. But Paul tells us that creates suffering, or I think some translations have tribulation. Same word, same meaning, outside pressure put upon us. And and rejoicing in times of such suffering or pressure, it sounds foolish, doesn't it, to those who do not know God. I mean, rejoicing and suffering? You know why they think that way? Why, why they think it's foolish to, to do that? Is because everything that they will ever have that in any sense is good or pleasant to them is found in this life, in this present life. Well, believers know differently. They know that the sufferings, the tribulations that they encounter are uh, now are only momentary and light compared to the eternal weight of glory. That's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4.17. And they focus on the fact that, that all of the suffering, tribulation, pressure that they experience in this present age is not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits them. That's Romans later in Romans, Romans 8.18. And right before Romans 8.18, 8.18, where he says it's not worthy to be compared with the glory. Remember verse 2, the hope of the glory of God. Right before that, he says, if we indeed are heirs and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Right. Suffering is associated with glory by God. That's not how people think that don't know the Lord. Suffering and glory, they're opposites, aren't they? and the thinking of the world. But they should not be for us as believers. So peace with God, as verse 1 said, does not necessarily mean peace with people. (laughs) Yeah, we live in a hostile world that hates God, and it hates God's people. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 33, uh, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Same word. You'll have suffering. you have outside pressure squeezing in on you. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And then he, he also told them in that same upper room discourse that, the, that if the world hated him, and it did, it would also hate his followers. That was chapter 15, verse 18. So consequently, we have suffering or tribulation or trials or outside pressure in this world. But along with the suffering that we experience, we, we have a deep joy, a deep joy in our hearts because we know that tribulation is temporary and it leads to something much, much more better, the glory of God and our presence with him.
The fifth benefit is, as Paul points out, uh, is that believers who rejoice in their suffering, not because they take pleasure in pain. I mean, it's not saying that believers are sadomasochistic, you know, but they know that along with the suffering being temporary, it also produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. And this word endurance, some of you from years ago are going to remember this Greek word, hupomone. This word endurance basically means to remain under. To remain under. As in the sense that when you are under pressure or experiencing suffering, uh, from Satan and the world and sometimes your own conscience and, and so on, when you are experiencing that, then the normal response is want to run from it. How do I get out from this pressure, out from underneath this pressure? How do I get out of this, you know, squeezing that is taking place? That's the normal response. But the believer is willing to take the squeezing of the culture and remain steadfast in their beliefs and in their conviction. That's what he's saying. Suffering produces endurance. So suffering has its value, and, and, and that is bringing about a resistance to satanic and worldly pressure and attacks. So endurance is the quality. It is the quality of bearing up under the pressure that the world and Satan bring upon us. And, and this, you know, re- remaining under, it's not the stoic idea of just hanging in there because you have to hang in there. No, it's more than that for the Christian. It is. And the believer does more. They actually rejoice. In their suffering. That's what he's just said, right? They rejoice in their suffering. Why? Because they know that through their suffering, they're able to bring glory to God. The purpose of life, right? What is the purpose of our life? To bring glory to God. The the, uh, early Christians understood that, and they wrote it in creeds and so on. It is to bring glory to God. Again, Paul probably has in mind suffering that is specifically related to our service for Christ. Now, I think you can apply these things that Paul says here to other suffering, like I'm suffering actually quite badly this morning. My back hurts a lot. My knee swell, uh, has swollen up uh, from exercises that I'm doing to help my back. And so it's very painful this morning. It's like, I, you know, I, I should be able to rejoice in that as well. Yeah. And I shouldn't endure through that. So, but Paul's not really thinking of physical, you know, things like that. He's talking about, you know, the attacks that will come upon us because we are followers of Christ. And this is not unlike what is written in the book of Acts by Luke regarding the apostles who were arrested and then released by the Sanhedrin after being threatened and beaten and so on. And, and they, it, the way Luke puts it, they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, Acts 5.41. 
So as we learn to rejoice in our suffering, God will build within us the virtue of endurance. I don't think we build that in ourselves. I think God does that as we're willing to remain under God builds with, uh, within us more resistance, more endurance until he works in us and through us all that he intends. That's God's sovereign plan for us. The sixth benefit that Paul goes on to say is, is character. Endurance produces character. Dakime uh, is the, the Greek word. And, and it is basically referring to character that has endured and passed the test. What test? The test of the suffering. They've endured and passed the test. And... And, and that's how that word was used. Now, let me put it in terms that we can maybe see it more clearly. Let's say that Ford comes out with a, a, a new car. And everyone's talking about it. And, of course, every car manufacturer will take their cars and they'll run them through tests to see that, you know, they, they do all that it's intended to do. And, you know, so Ford tests this new car and they say it passed the test. They'll do all of this. And then let's say that Chevy takes that same car and runs it through its own test. But they're tweaking the test a little bit because they want to make sure it doesn't pass the test. Well, Satan is bringing pressure. The world is bringing attacks against us. It causes suffering, right? It causes suffering. And, of course, Satan doesn't want us to pass the test. But God brings the suffering into our life so that we will pass the test. So God is actually using Satan to bring testing, tribulations, suffering into our life so that we will pass the test and have the character of Christ in us. If you read the book of Job, pay attention to chapter 1 in particular and then chapter 2 which shows you that all the testing and the suffering that Job experienced, the losing of his family, you know, all his, basically his wealth, all his animals, you know, all of that, he's, he's left, uh, and then gets boils on his body and has to scrape the pus off, and all of that is a result of Satan going before God and God saying, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one righteous like him in all the world. Well, that's only because you're so good to him. If you, if you, if you let you know, testing trials come into his life, he won't, he won't honor you. Uh, okay, well, go, go, go at it. Just, you know, you can't take his life, but go at it. It's, it's God's dialogue with Satan that brings about the testing in Job's life. Don't think that it's different for us. Don't think that it's different for us. But God wants us to pass the test because, you know, what it will do is it will produce within us 
quality of character that belongs to Christ. And it's not unlike the testing that's mentioned in the Old Testament when it refers to the goldsmith or the smith who will put their precious metals through the fire to get the impurities out so that all that is remaining is the precious metal. In Zechariah 13.9, God talks about the test that he will put Israel through. And he, he says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. Well, that's what God does with testing that is brought upon us by the outside pressure that the world brings to us. So just as the refining fire of the smith removes the impurities from the precious metals, so the pressure of trials and suffering and, and, the, and the endurance to remain under it, it produces something in us. And what it produces is the, the pure character of Christ. So believers pass the test because they have endured through the suffering with rejoicing. And because they successfully endure, they have more of the character of the Lord Jesus, who himself, by the way, suffered and passed the test. So we become more like Christ. Now, finally, and it's not a seventh benefit, it really is just bringing us back to one of the other ones. Finally, the Apostle Paul says that character produces hope. Isn't this a beautiful circle? Back in verse 2 is we have hope because of the access and the peace. We have hope of the glory of God. And now he says that, uh, that, our, that cycle that ends with character actually ends with further hope. What a beautiful circle. It began with hope and, and the glory of God. And now it comes back to hope. And just as our present access uh, into the grace in which we stand gives us hope of the glory of God... So does the suffering that we experience. Why do we go to God, into his throne room? To, why do we go there? Well, according to Hebrews 4, 16, to receive grace and mercy in a time of need. What is our time of need? Well, oftentimes it's related to the suffering that we're experiencing. And so we go to God and he gives us the hope that he will help us. So... Again, this is, uh, this is you know, stressing how what we have awaiting for us in the future shapes how we view and respond to what is happening in our present. That's why, you know, it, that's going to be the last part of this, this section is that it changes our future as well. Now, the rest of verse 5, or verse 5, let me read that again, explains more about this hope that we have, that, that character produces. Hope does not put us to shame. Uh, some of the translations have, does not disappoint us. Uh, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. <laughs> so, again, several versions have, uh, it, it doesn't disappoint. Several versions have, it uh, it doesn't put us to shame. And, you know, from my perspective, when you, when you hear that, you think, well, those sound like entirely different ideas. To not be disappointed and not be put to shame. But it really is expressing the same idea. The, the word that is used here by Paul does refer to shame or disgrace or to dishonor. 
And the idea of being disappointed, as, as some of the translations have it, is, is not bad because it, it is to be understood as referring to the shame or dishonor or disgrace that comes to one whose faith in the hope of a, a future glory is in vain. In, in other words, uh, you know, it's shame related to, it's like, you believed a lie. There really is no future glory that you get to be uh, part of. So the disappointment idea is not the same as the disappointment, you know, the, of my team losing, you know, a game. It's not the disappointment of going fishing and everyone around you is catching fish, but you can't keep one on your line. You, you don't even get them on your line. Or it's not the disappointment of, you know, going out to dinner and then going home and saying, well, I was kind of disappointed with my meal. That's not the kind of disappointment that Paul is talking about. There's no shame associated with such things like that. Rather, this is the shame or disappointment that would be there if the gospel message is not true. If that were the case, our faith would be empty, right? It would be vain, and, and shame. the shame would be that we have believed a lie. And Paul actually speaks to that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection. He says, hey, if Christ isn't resurrected, then your faith is empty, and, and you are of all people most to be pitied because you believed something that isn't true and, and doesn't give you real hope. You've lived your life in accordance with that and you've missed out on a lot that life may have offered you just because you were believing a lie. And, and so it's, but the, the resurrection is true. And Paul would say, you know, the gospel message is true. It is true. There is no shame or disappointment associated with the hope of the gospel because it's not tied to the believer's actions or the actions of others, but rather on the truth that God will fulfill all that he's promised to do through the gospel message, which is give you a right relationship with him, give you joy in the midst of suffering, give you peace in the midst of trial, you know, and so much more. Right, The gospel does not disappoint in that way. It will not lead to shame. So believers will never experience the shame and disappointment of false hope. Because, Paul says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. That's his explanation of, of that. We, we will not face shame. We will not be disappointed because something is true. God has poured his love into our hearts and we know it. Yes. And we know it. And, and, and we know it because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You know, human love may, and then I'm going to change that, does bring about disappointment. Now, I, I love my wife and she loves me. No question about it. Uh, this December, we'll be married 50 years. But let me tell you, sometimes she disappoints me. And sometimes, more times probably, I disappoint her. God will never disappoint. The gospel will never disappoint. I, you know, human love is, is precarious. We've all placed our trust and hope in the love of others only to have our hopes dashed and the love unreturned, right? We, we know that is true of human love, but our hope in God is secure because we know that God loves us and 
His love never fluctuates and it never fails, right? It's everlasting. Think of Psalm 136 where the repeated line in every verse is the love of the Lord is everlasting. Everlasting. It is constant. It never ends. So Paul beautifully describes God's love for us as being poured out. The King James Version has shed abroad in our hearts. The, the verb is written, here we go again with this grammatical stuff. It's written in the perfect tense, which by now you ought to know because I've said it a number of time, times. The perfect tense simply is talking about an event that happened in the past but has continuing results or uh, effect. So it was poured out in the past and it continues. God's love for us was poured out and we believed it. It was poured into our hearts at that time and, and there's a continuing nature of his love for us. Now when was it initially poured out? What was it initially poured out by God when he so loved the world that he gave his only son? And when Jesus hung on the cross, God's love was poured out as Jesus' blood was poured out. That proved God's love for sinners. Yet this love from God is such that it is continually being poured into our hearts so that it's really overflowing. Uh, The phrase speaks of the inexhaustible supply, uh, the, the abundance of the supply. God's love is not rationed out. We were singing about God's love. In fact, as we were singing these songs, I was thinking, man, that really fits with the passage today. That really fits with the passage today. That really fits with the passage today. I mean, awesome. As I was thinking about what we're singing about God's love. So God's love is not rationed out drop by drop. Like you take an eyedropper and you got a little vial and you put it in there. And it's like, okay, I got to sparingly put this out because it might run out. No, God's love is never going to run out. It's an inexhaustible supply, and it it is supplied to us freely and abundantly and lavishly because the supply will never run out. The Holy Spirit has poured it out into our hearts. That's why we know. And that's what he says. The reference to the Holy Spirit explains the, the means by which God's love was actually been, has been poured out into our hearts. When we placed our faith in Jesus, something beautiful happened. Uh, Not only were we declared righteous because our sins were forgiven, the Holy Spirit actually entered into us and he dwells in us and will be with us permanently. I don't know if you hear it or not, but this is eternal security that we're seen here. And it gets even more clear as we move on through the rest of the text. So the Holy Spirit is the one that helped us see our need of the Savior, right? Pointed out to us that we were sinners. And the Holy Spirit is the one who, uh, you know, gave us the gift of repentance. The Holy Spirit is the one who generated faith within us to believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one, according to Titus 3, who regenerated our dead spirits. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates the word of God to us. The word of God is the one who leads us and guides us and fills our life with love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, forbearance, 
You know, against such things there is no law. He fills our life with those qualities. And the first of those was love. He poured out the love of God for us into our lives. So whether whether we are living with joy overflowing or our spirits are are feeling a little despair over our failures to live up to our calling in Christ, or things are going well and are pleasant, or our life is filled with tribulation and suffering, if we will but open our hearts and minds to the Holy Spirit, he will remind us that we are loved by God, and he will do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And he will tell us, Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, verse 39. Now finally, in the last uh, verses, Paul demonstrates that being justified in the past is a guarantee of our future deliverance. That's verses 6 through 11. So in this final part of this passage... Paul is explaining this love of God, why we will never be put to shame or disappointed, uh, and because we know the love of God is in us. So if he loved us in our sinful state, surely he will always care for us once we are his children and his friends, right? If he loved us when we were ugly, (laughs) he will love us now that he's made us beautiful, And he will secure our future deliverance at the time of judgment. So that's what these verses are about. And in these verses, Paul will say that God loved us and Christ died for us when we were four things. Four words describing we were weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies. Some of the translations have helpless, I think, for the first one weak or helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. So the depth of God's love is most clearly seen in whom Christ died to save, isn't it? Isn't it? Man, you you people need to get your amen button fixed. Mm, Yeah, I mean, maybe you got all your amens out when we're singing the now unto the king eternal. We had... You know, at the end of that five amens, so it's like, that's my, that's my fulfillment of all my amens for the day. Wrong! You should be saying amen to this kind of stuff. So he did, you know, Jesus didn't come to, to die for the spiritually healthy, did he? He came to die for the unhealthy. He didn't come to die for the righteous. He came to die for the unrighteous. He didn't, he didn't come to rescue his friends came to rescue those who hated him. So by week, we'll just take a, a moment and think about these four words. And it's, I'm, when I say a moment, well, it's longer than a moment because that's already gone. But it's not going to be very long, so just li- listen well. And by week, he's referring to moral weakness, the inability to live in such a way that we satisfy the moral and religious requirements and, and standards of God. We, we were incapable in living in such a way that we would not end up deserving the wrath of God. We just couldn't do it. No one can. That's what Paul has said in the first part of Romans. Only Jesus did, right? Only Jesus did. He was without sin. 
we were also powerless to help ourselves. But God's love overcame our weakness. Amen. That's the beauty of it. We were weak, but he was not. The power of his love, <laughs> it overcame our, our powerlessness, our weakness. By ungodly, Paul means that we were withholding from God the honor and respect, the worship that he was due. So as creatures created in his image, we are supposed to honor and worship and respect the creator. Paul dealt with that in chapter 1 where he says people denied the creator and they, they made gods of their imagination. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's what it means to be ungodly. Um, by sinners, of course, he is describing those who miss the mark, right? We talked about sin before, what that means. A sinner, harmartia, means to miss the mark, the mark of God's glorious perfection. And by enemies, he means that we were opposed to God and God was at war with us. Consequently, we all deserve something, and it's called God's wrath, his holy judgment. So it is striking then when Paul emphasizes that God's love for us was while we were still all those things. Get that? While we were still all those things. Look at verse 6 again. For while we were still weak. Verse 8. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners. And verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God. He did it. He showed his love and died for us while we were still those things. God did not wait for us to recognize our condition and promise to change if he would save us. God's love being given was not conditioned on us loving him first. God's love was poured out while we were still choosing to be separated from him and hate him. Paul also says that it was at the right time that Christ died for us. Now, I think there's two meanings to this statement. He died at the right time. First, it was the right time because it came at the time that we were still all those things. While we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, it was the right time to demonstrate the depth of God's love for us. So if God waited for us to change first before sending his son to die for us, it would be no different than human love. That's what human love does. I'll love you if you love me. I'll love you if you love me first. Uh, no, I, I, I'll love you if you respond in love to me. You know, it's, it's so fickle and hmm, in just not good. God's love, no, he died for us while we were all those things. He loved us while we were all those things. And what does that say? Well, it says God's love is different and better and greater and awesome, more so than human love. We were singing about God's love this morning means so awesome. Second, it was the right time in the sense that it was God's appointed time. It was God's appointed time for Christ's sacrifice for sinners. This is similar, very similar to Galatians 4, 4, and 5, where it says, but when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, you know, time started at creation, right? God spoke everything into existence, and the fullness of time happened when Christ died for us. I mean, that was the peak of time. And everything that has followed follows out of that. It trails out of that. That was the peak. That was the fullness of time. In other words, it was the time that had fit God's purposes and plans to show his love for sinners so that they could be right with him. So redemption and propitiation and justification and reconciliation, which is mentioned in this passage, was not an afterthought. It was actually determined before God ever said, let there be anything. It was already in the mind and heart of God, according to Scripture. So this was the time and the way that God had always intended to deal with sin. In verse 7, Paul brings us a wondrous aspect of Christ's death for us. Notice what he says. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And then he he adds, uh, well, it's, it's plausible that someone would die for a good person, right? The, the righteous person to whom Paul is referring to is not a person who's got a right standing with God, who has placed their faith in Christ, and they've been declared righteous by faith. No, this is a reference to a person as regard for justice, for law, the letter of law. He will not de- deviate from the letter of law. He's a, he's a moral person, the person who has righteous principles and lives with them, lives by them. You could liken it to the Pharisees. They were that type of people. They knew the law, and they said, we're going to live by the law. And and by the way, one thing that usually goes along with those people is they judge others who don't live that way. And you see that in the Pharisees. So the good person is one who goes beyond, is better than, different in a positive way than the righteous person. The good person is one who not only does moral things, has that moral value, but is also warm and kind toward other people. He is compassionate and caring and is dealing with other people who are hurting, let's say. So Paul's setting up a beautiful contrast, showing the unique character of the love of God as opposed to the love of people. One would hardly show their love to die for a righteous person. Maybe, maybe. Not likely, but maybe for a good person. God's love is for people who deserve his wrath. Who are weak and ungodly and sinners and enemies. So in verse 8, Paul goes on to show that while it is unusual to find people who are willing to sacrifice or die for others, even for righteous and good people, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was for sinners, for sinners that Christ died, not for righteous and good people. So what a difference between the tremendous value of the life laid down, the sinless son of God, and the unworthiness of those who stand to benefit from it, those who continually fall short of his perfection. What tremendous love God has for sinners. As I was writing this out, it made me think of the old hymn, The Love of God. 
The love of God is greater far than tongue can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Oh, the love of God. And once again, Paul says that, you know, that, that he uses the word still to point out our state of being while Christ died for us. So there was no indication that we were ready to amend our lives. There was no precondition of promised change before Christ died for us. God loved us, not because of any goodness or even potential goodness in us, you know, after he would save us. No, he simply chose to love us while we were still sinners. Wow. So we ask ourselves, or we should ask ourselves, how could it be that we who deserve the wrath of God received the love of God, while he who deserved the love of God received the wrath of God? Paul goes on to state that if God loved us so deeply that the Savior died for us while we were still sinners, and because of that we were justified, then surely we will be saved from the wrath of God at the time of judgment. Since therefore, he says, we now have been justified. Notice the past. We have been justified. The moment we put our faith in Christ, we were justified. But he says, much more shall we be saved uh, by him from the wrath of God. So God's love for us does not stop short of effecting complete and everlasting salvation. What Pastor Tom read, he is able to save forever to the uttermost to uh, completely and it emphasizes the the eternal security of God both Hebrews 7 as well as here much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God so Paul uses much more to introduce a, a particularly ta- a particular type of argument it's called an argument from the greater to the lesser If Christ has done the greater work of justifying sinners through his death, he will certainly certainly perform the comparatively simple task of keeping those who are now God's friends and family. That's his argument. If God did the greater work through justifying sinners through the death of Christ, God will do the simple task of just keeping us safe until the end. Hmm. So when he says, by the way, that we'll be saved from the wrath of God, he's speaking of the future, the future deliverance when God's wrath is poured out at the final judgment. He's not talking about the wrath that is presently being poured out on the earth. We know that we're delivered from that, but he's talking about the future judgment, the great white throne judgment, or the judgment seat of Christ. What wonderful news. What wonderful news. We have the love of God poured out into us, verse 4, instead of the wrath of God poured on us in this verse. Of this we can be certain, for the work of God began in us when we believed will be completed until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. In verse 10, Paul uses the fourth term to describe what we were prior to being justified. We were enemies. Get that? Enemies. 
And once again, it was while we were enemies that God reconciled us. He acted in such a way that we could be right with him. Hmm. Being an, by the way, being the enemy of God is a, a far cry, a long way away from being the friend of God. There's great distance there. And there was war between two opposing sides, and we were in the enemy's camp. And some feel that Paul is saying that we, we were at war with God, and to some extent that is true, but here the reference is focusing more on the fact that God was at war with us because who who we were. And a reference to the wrath of God in the previous verse emphasizes or indicates that God's hostility towards his enemies is what's in view. Right? God was at war with us. And Paul again uses an argument from the greater to the lesser. Notice the much more. Much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We shall be saved by his life. So God's hostility towards sinners is not the last word. Praise God. (laughs) It is for unbelievers, but not for us. We've been reconciled. What a beautiful word. Reconciled through the death of God's son. And, And peace has been made. And God is no longer at war with us. If God did the relatively greater act of reconciling us when we were weak, ungodly sinners who were his enemies, he most certainly will do the lesser work of securing us eternally because of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what he means when he says we will be saved by his life, his life after he died. Because he is risen and reigns, we are secured forever. And with much more than that in verse 11, again, look at that verse, much more than that, or more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So with that, Paul's just kind of piling on further considerations of the benefits we enjoy because of our justification. Not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but here we are said to rejoice in God. We rejoice in God. And and I think this expression is simply bringing out the spontaneous exuberance of of the Christian life, those who have been justified by God. And even this, though, is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this emphasizes that everything that the believer enjoys in relationship with God is because of what Jesus has done for us. What he did for us through his death and resurrection has changed everything. Everything. So, back to where we started last week with a question. What are the benefits of being a Christian? What are the benefits of being a Christian? And Paul's answered that in this passage. And by the way, it has nothing to do with happiness or health or wealth. Which is kind of the way that a lot of people hear the gospel. God wants to save you so he can make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. It's like, that's not the gospel. 
That is not the gospel. What Paul has taught in this section, if I could put it in, in just one uh, sentence, so to speak, it would be because we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ in the past. And we've been so loved by God, we should live life in the present by focusing on the hope of the future. So is Christianity only a fire escape so that we miss out on the, the final judgment, the wrath of God? No, no. Is Christianity only the pursuit about the knowledge of God, knowing all the right things? That's right, no. Being a, being a Christian, is that you know, about changing one part of our life, you know, the compartment called the religious? No, good, good. You passed the test. <laughs> being a Christian or being justified by God or being in a right relationship with God or however you want to say that beautiful truth means so much more than that. I mean, it means that we know that because we believed in Jesus, we were declared righteous in the sight of God and we were set free from the penalty of sin. And it means that we have peace with God. It means that we can be confident of our future deliverance when we will receive a glorified body, hallelujah. It also means that whatever the world throws our way, no matter how hard it is to take, we can go through it with rejoicing and will remain under it because God is building in us through that uh, a life that looks like his son. So we can make it through life with great confidence that this life here is only a training ground for something that is prepared for us in the future that is so much more better. So how should I then live? Well, I should live in the present by focusing on the future. That's pretty simple. How should I live? By focusing on the future. How should I deal with suffering? Well, I should rejoice in it because it's temporary and it doesn't compare with the future. How should I live with, you know, people that are ugly, violent? So I should live with joy knowing that God rescued me from being just like them. And he promised me a home and I want to share with them the promise that he gave me. How should I live with a cantankerous woman? You know, I, that's how Proverbs puts it. <laughs> I should live with joy because God has provided for me a beautiful thing in my life. And he's, he's, he's done so much in me through what she has brought me. I, it, it changes everything. Justified changes everything. So, live life in the present by focusing on the future. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for justification, being declared right with you, having a right relationship with you, having a, a relationship that is filled up with joy and love and goodness and, and a life that has totally been transformed from the inside out. We we feel differently. We desire different things. We are being changed day by day because of an event that happened when you drew us to faith in Jesus. So thank you. And thank you for the great future that you've 
promised us. We look forward to the Lord's return and that day when we'll stand before him, see him face to face, and we'll be able to thank him for his grace. Thank you also for all that you provide for us in the daily lives that we have. One of those things is food. And so we're thankful for the food we're going to eat on the other side and your provision of it. So all praise be to you, our great God, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through the ministry of the Spirit. Amen.